Mark Teeley has spent his entire life in and around IT infrastructure, even building his own fair share of data centers. But if there is one thing about the entire process that he finds vexing, it's the wasted time between companies starting negotiating their contracts for data centers to when they actually launch. So after a 27-year career working with other companies, he set out on his own and started Edgevana with a simple goal, to help get companies to the edge faster. Getting to the edge may seem hard for some, but it's not for lack of available capability. The problem is not that that stuff isn't available, but how do I find it and how do I make quick determinations about what combination of services or capabilities or partners do I need in order to solve the problem or create the opportunity that I'm pursuing for my business. Mark joined IT Visionaries to discuss why streamlining the buying and implementation process is the key to moving quickly to the edge. Plus, Mark touches on why edge computing continues to be on the rise and what IT leaders should be looking for in edge technology. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have the CEO and founder of Edgevana, Mark Teeley. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to join. All right. We always let all of our guests tell us, you know, about the company they work at. Since you're the founder, we got to know what is Edgevana? Edgevana is a, a little bit of a dream child for me. I've, um, I've spent most of my career innovating inside of other people's uh, IT organizations, building infrastructure and data centers and things like that. And and um, never thought I had the, um, the polite term, I guess, gumption to um, go out and do it on my own. But over the last five years, I've been spending the majority of my time looking at technology, but technology focused on, on edge. And my basic assumption was that uh, edge was going to be big enough that all of the infrastructure that we have available on the planet now needs to be brought to bear. And that the best way to expand the market is not by forcing everyone to build new for every opportunity that might expand to the edge, but rather leverage existing infrastructure that has, to some degree, beginning to go fallow because of changed buying behavior. People buying for edge, people buying for for digital transformation are no longer buying the neighborhood data center. That's not their strategy anymore. So I thought with the, the thousands of data centers around the world, individually, each one of those data centers may not seem all that important, but connected they offer an enormous opportunity to the customer and people trying to deploy and, and or exploit at the edge or even deploy because of um, greater technology adoption through digital transformation. And so I'm through Edgevana, I'm trying to make that process easier, um, trying to make the, um, the idea of buying complex, formally very physical, very manual oriented purchases of network, of data center, of services, of edge compute, all those things, trying to make that much more of a of a composable kind of best fit opportunity for the customer rather than the traditional pragmatic, let's spend three months or three years going through this, um, trying to find what we need. And let's walk some of our listeners through this conversation, because as much as we have C-suite level people, we also have people that are just entering into the workforce and want to learn much more about technology. One of the key words you keep throwing, you've used is the idea and this concept of edge. 
I'm going to kind of say what I know about it, and then I'd love to hear your interpretation. So the whole idea of edge is that your compute resource moves closer to the basically who needs it. So everywhere I am, instead of sending a signal back to an HQ or sending a signal back to like Ashburn, where all the public cloud service providers are located at, that latency and time between the moment I want information, the moment I get information, that's the whole point of edge is bringing that whole resource closer to me so I basically effectively can work through massive data sets, through bigger applications, through bigger utilities, closer, faster, and more seamlessly. Now, the other thing I understand about data centers is it's bought and sold kind of like real estate. So you're, cause you, the reason why I bring this up is because you talk about how you're, you're approaching it in a different way. And you would have to, if I wanted to, let's say, locate a resource in a local data center, I'd have to call them up. I got to rent what they call a cage. I got to put my equipment in there. You said network is not readily available. That might be surprising to people that even though you bought in space edge at a data center, you would then need to order connectivity. If you wanted to connect to public cloud, you'd have to order a direct connect. That might take like, I've heard it takes months. It can take months to even get a direct line into a public cloud service. So this is where it is. The idea of edge is that all the computing resources closer to you, but the reality of data center purchasing is that it's very piecemeal, let's say. And it's like, you have to fill out orders and it takes time. It's not like public cloud services where I say, I want to, I want to spin up a, uh, let's say, uh, you know, a server. I click a button and it's there. If I were to build an edge compute center close to me, I'd literally have to go shopping for equipment. I'd have to go, this is like a lot, a lot of steps. Yep. That's what I understand in the world today. Talk about how you see it and how Edge Vana is going to simplify this process, kind of like what you were talking about. Yeah, no, uh, that's great. I mean, and you you stated like at least half of my problem statement or opportunity statement, as I prefer to call it, uh, relative to Edge Vana. But Edge computing, I mean, I wouldn't only add like two things, two flavors to what you said. One flavor is more around the fact that, and this is maybe obvious, and I just want to state it because it makes me feel better, um, that it's more than the individual. It's also machine to machine, machine to individual. That's right. It's um, experiential. Uh, it's uh, factory floor, right? It's all of those things. But what you said still applies to all of that, right? It's bringing the capability to execute against those opportunity spaces closer to where the execution needs to occur. And the reason it needs to occur is what creates the demand for edge, right? The reason it needs to occur is I'm creating too much data and I can't afford to send that data somewhere else. That's one of the most common problems, right? And I mean, there are large companies right now who didn't think they were going to be building edge, but when they got uh, partway through their IoT deployment, their their video um, IoT solution, their their in-store training uh, programs, et cetera, et cetera, they realized they were creating and managing so much data from each one of the sites that they couldn't afford to backhaul that data to some central location. And that's, that's one problem. The other problem, of course, is that in many cases, the applications designed for people at the edge now are designed around the idea of being offered via low latency, right? So whether it's AR, VR, or uh, doing um, AI against analytics coming off of a, a set of factory equipment on a shop floor, uh, managing traffic patterns in a city, managing the distance between cars, managing whether uh, cars know that a pedestrian's in the crosswalk at the next left-hand turn, these are all just pieces of tens of millions of opportunity places that Edge can solve for. But in the end, it, it really is solving for two things. It's solving for um, latency and it's solving for um, data. And over and above that, it's designed around 
how it's going to be used. So how much resiliency you need in it, uh, how much efficiency you need in it is all going to be around how it'll be used. You know, I, I completely agree. A lot of the future, a lot of the the things people are building towards are going to depend on this idea that compute between, like you said, computer to computer, computer to enterprise, computer to individual, whatever that may be, is going to be smoother, faster, move more data, faster return speeds, everything faster with consuming more data and distributing more data. So then I want to ask you, what is Edgevana's role in changing the way data center infrastructure, where we purchase data, what is Edgevana's role going to be in making edge compute come to a, a reality? Yeah, realistically, the way I see edge happening is not by um, some single large application that is it, you can justify spending hundreds on infrastructure for in deployment, but rather by a lot of little $1 opportunities. And why is that important? Well, if I wanted to enable edge and I had, uh, you know, the latest Pokemon game and 2 billion people were going to use it for a couple of years, I could justify putting, you know, 10 racks of servers in new data centers in thousands of locations, maybe to support the use of that application. Maybe I'm just making something up there. Yeah. On the other hand, for people who don't know for sure how, how well or how much their um, app will be adopted or the monetary opportunity associated with that app is very small in the sense that the per customer usage um, value uh, is fairly low, then approaching the market can be really difficult. Even if, you're, if, even if you were able to use a cloud provider to get to all the locations you wanted to, the initial cost of that rollout can be pretty high. And so for those folks who can't um, solve their problem with uh, uh, the typical centralized um, compute infrastructure of your primary cloud providers. What I'm hoping to be able to do is, is for lack of a better description, um, put the easy button on being able to string together the locations that you want to be able to deploy your equipment. Now, whether that equipment is yours uh, in partnership with some other supplier, you know, built uh, with in partnership with Edgevana, any one or all of those things are options, but the primary goal for Edgevana is really just to simplify how you get access to that market. And why is, why is that important? Well, we touched on it a little bit at the beginning to kind of repeat for those folks who haven't done a lot of data center purchasing, it's generally speaking a very painful, uh, oftentimes serial process, <laughs> uh, very contract heavy. Um, the due diligence, depending on what kind of application you're deploying, the due diligence for each data center can become problematic. And so, if for the average buyer getting into one data center can take three to six months or longer, what are you going to do when you need 10 or 20 or 100 data centers? You can't possibly support the idea of sending teams of people around the world uh, or teams of agents around the world uh, to identify, uh, you know, 100 different suppliers for your 200 locations because of uh, your, your location requirements and then have to worry about managing all of that due diligence, managing all of those contracts, managing all the separate billing, managing separate tools that allow for access and visibility into those data centers. All of that stuff becomes an enormous burden. And back to my original point, if I'm trying to roll out just a few servers or half a rack or one rack in a lot of locations, there's no way I can afford that kind of front-end, uh, front-loaded, um, you know, long-time to value cost. It just doesn't make sense. And so Edgevana is really trying to help solve for that problem and, and give people faster access, whether they need three data centers in three specific locations or 300 data centers 
in core cities across Asia and Europe and Africa. We're here to help uh, do everything we can to simplify and shorten the time for acquisition. So how, how does the future state, gonna, how's it going to work? Because like you mentioned, there's tons of service providers, there's tons of locations, everyone's got their own agendas, contracts. Are you negotiating with all these different providers? How they have to plug into Edgevana? How are, I'm just curious, this, and this is what's so fascinating because anytime, I think we all agree that when you can simplify a process, everyone wins. But the reality is you have to get all the suppliers to abide by that process, right? right. Amazon works because every person who ships and fulfills through Amazon follows their rules. Yep. And it goes, and that is true for every marketplace, right? Uber is easy because every driver agrees to list their car, to have insurance. Like they, they have unilateral support among drivers. Otherwise, it can't be on platform. So is that the game plan? I'm curious how you're approaching this because uh, it's a massive problem. I'm curious how you're approaching solving this and making it simple to, simple to buy. Yeah, the initial, the initial effort, lo- longer term, uh, will probably morph as we get more folks on board and we get more buy-in and, and more proof of concept. But the initial focus will be, I don't want to call it a half measure, but um, this, uh, a vast improvement over how it's existing, how it's done uh, with existing process, will be a form of, of centralized contract management with um, the goal, depending on the provider, depending on the, um, the unique customer requirements, but the goal in most circumstances would be that the customers w- and buyers would use a common contract that we have developed with specific amendment opportunities for special services that might be offered by the operators. But even the special services will be labeled and tagged so that they can be standardized across the um, multiple copies of the same contract so that the operator and the customer still know what they're buying and know what they're protecting from each other. But from a buyer perspective, the process for um, executing the contract and managing it after the fact is dramatically simplified. So how did you recognize or how did you start thinking about solving this problem of the different things that you could potentially be involved in? Because I didn't know if this was something you experienced firsthand or is something that you heard quite commonly from your peers. I always want to dive into how you, how um, CEOs, founders approach which problems to solve. Because of course, there's tons of problems to solve. Yeah. To be honest, uh, my, I mean, I've, I've had experience on the buy side and on the sell side, right? So I've, I've bought from data centers and I've built data centers and I've worked for a data center company. And I was, uh, frankly, always frustrated by some of the things that people just take for granted. The time it takes to um, get to an agreement uh, between a, an agent and a buyer and the data center supplier. The time it takes to, once that agreement is reached, to, to get to installing of hardware. All of those things I considered to be real problems, but you know, they, weren't, they weren't mine to solve necessarily, especially after I left the, um, the data center business space. But I, I looked at the, at the larger space of, of buyers and thought, this can't be acceptable long term. And I'm a little bit of a data center junkie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been around data centers for a long time. My brother-in-law and I even founded an organization for data center owner operators called Data Center Pulse, which we ran actively for about five years from 2008 to 2013. And so I I have a a kinship with data centers and with the folks that run and operate and sell data center space. And I thought, you know, the, the best way for creating competition in the market and solving customer problems at the same time is to help these data center operators 
be more viable and visible to the customer community in the same way that infrastructure is more viable and and opportunistically acquired by the, by customers now because they can acquire it either as hyper-converged infrastructure, they can acquire it as a managed service, or they can acquire it via cloud. But any one of those capabilities or options for the buyer would easily be considered a dramatic improvement over what we would have been doing 15 years ago before you know the first S3 instance uh, was created um, or before the, before the first true hyper-converged infrastructure stack was created. And so I'm trying to effectively bring that kind of same thought process to the data center world and the services that support the data center world because there's two things in, in the world. Well, there's a lot of things in the world that I dislike, but two of the things <laughs> that, I, that, I, that I really don't like in the world is waste and waste that has a, a potential negative impact on the environment at the same time, right? So if we don't effectively use the infrastructure we've already built around the world because it's not easily consumable, What's the alternative? The alternative is either the market doesn't grow as fast as it could, or people build net new. And as far as I'm concerned, and I'm stealing a quote from Christian Bellotti of Microsoft, but as far as I'm concerned, the best data center ever built was the data center that you don't have to build. I like that thought process. The one thing that I wanted to add to it is, you know, since the advent of public cloud, because I think the analogy to compare it to buying real estate is exactly the best one, because I think all of us have probably either rented an apartment or purchased a home. It means it takes a long time. So when public cloud first became available and you could just, you know, oh, I need storage. I just sign up for storage instantly. I got it. Oh, I need to add a server instantly. I got it. I need a web server so I can show it to a lot of people instantly got it. You know, I need DNS so I can make sure my applications as accessible as possible from anywhere in the world. You just turn on a couple services in public cloud and now you got it. Whereas back in the day, of course, you got to rent, you got to wait. And just like renting from an apartment, you'd have to wait for your contract up. You'd have to commit to a certain level of capacities, a certain levels of storage. You had to make so many commitments. So public cloud, of course, when it first came out, then you also had people saying, oh, data center's dead. But then when data center, when, and then you also had people that also on the other side of the coin said, no, data center will rise, public cloud, no one's ever going to want to depend on shared services. And yet here we are today, 2020, and data center and cloud are on the rise. Why do you think that's happening? Yeah, it's, it, well, I mean, a lot of what we've been talking about um, is a good definition for why it's been happening, right? But I, I think it's a, it's a question that um, many in the industry would love uh, to have the perfect answer for. Um, my answer to why they're both on the rise is, is a little bit of a combo. Try to give you maybe three or four potential answers um, that may, in fact, all be combined to create the the right answer. But one is that enterprises are unlikely to, as a rule, entirely, uh, meaning all enterprises, give up all of their compute infrastructure. It's just <laughs> unlikely to happen. Not before something really magical with centralized AI, where you just talk into a computer and it figures out everything else you need to do because it's that smart. Uh, and you never need an application running uh, in your uh, building anymore. Uh, when that'll occur is anybody's guess. But until that happens, a lot of organizations, for any number of reasons, um, whether it's uh, protection because they think they should be worried about lock-in, whether it's uh, protection because they feel that if they give away the keys and economics or opportunity changes, um, rebuilding what they had will be too hard, 
uh, or whether they recognize that some of the applications they have are really old and are unlikely to be updated, but the data that supports them and other applications is all on-premise. And if they move that data to the cloud, they'll be paying for it in the cloud and they'll be paying to run it on-premise. So these, among other things, are some of the reasons why data centers will continue to exist and continue to grow, whether in the enterprise or uh, certainly in the colo space. Now, when you throw edge into the mix, that exacerbates the problem or uh, you know, creates the opportunity, depending on your perspective, that says that the cloud providers and even the large data center providers, uh, as you pointed out early on, Albert, uh, about Ashburn, have tended to build in centralized locations. And while many customers enjoy very good latency to and from a public cloud in North America, Many customers experience uh, north of 80 to as much as 100 millisecond, 160 milliseconds of latency to a given cloud, even in North America. When you think about North America, it's a big country, but it's also practically covered in cloud, it would seem, right? And so when you think about that from a global perspective and you think about the demand for lower latency associated with edge or uh, the amount of data that will be created at the edge and, and the cost and complications of attempting to centralize that data for any kind of real-time analytics mean that data centers that are within earshot almost of where the customer is working or, or where the machines are creating data become a requirement. And the economics of many of the biggest players, their economies of scale, their, their actual business model doesn't easily support saying, well, now I'm going to, instead of spending another $40 billion next year on building more centralized giant infrastructure in three more countries and two more regions or whatever the case may be, I'm going to instead spend $20 billion by putting you know, 200 very small data centers in ideal locations. Well, even then, 200 locations, when you're thinking about edge, might be the greater Silicon Valley or maybe California depending on what problems you're solving at the edge. So what are you building for? And how many can you afford to build? So all, you know, I could go on and on with this problem statement, but all of that has led me to believe that we're going to need all of the infrastructure that we have available to us. We're going to end up building even more. We're going to build more networks. We're going to build more data centers. But the best opportunity for us to expand uh, the edge market, digital transformation efforts that go into unique locations around the world uh, localized economies that don't have excellent uh, local cloud providers or managed service providers. All of these are areas of opportunity for either building new or expanding on what's already there. And you know, I'll, I'll kind of end that comment with another a data center geek piece of information, which is that <laughs> getting into a new market, uh, like let's say for instance, I mean, I'm a longtime California person, even though I live in Vegas right now. I lived in Fremont for a long time. And let's say that Amazon or Equinix decided they wanted a data center on the edge of Fremont for whatever reason, for edge or for content or something. Well, the effort involved in putting a five or three or two megawatt facility, depending on their demand, at the edge of Fremont, the effort involved in getting to the building of that data center and the cost associated with it is not that much different from the cost associated with building a 50 or 100 megawatt campus. I'm not saying the two cost the same, but the due diligence the effort involved in getting power and permitting and tax abatements and identifying the right site and doing trenching and, and hiring labor and all of those things to get started in that location end up costing very similar to, to what their 
economies of scale model would be in building a large campus. So it's just not economical to think that cloud providers independent of partners or large uh, data center providers like Equinix or DRT or whatever can afford to just randomly start building hundreds of locations around the world, right? It has to be, for them to do that, it, it would have to be customer driven demand, meaning I have a megawatt and I'll pay you to put a data center with more capacity than that in a particular location. But that's unlikely to be the uh, driver for most edge applications. So at, at a previous company I worked at, we talked with a lot of different people in the infrastructure space. And one of the things that they brought up to me was the fact that there are just, like you said, geo restrictions that prevent fast connectivity or you know data center build outs. You mentioned Fremont. I've heard Vancouver is similar. Yep. There must be something happening in Silicon Valley because everyone always talks about how while Silicon Valley is the hub of software development, it actually has slow connectivity for everybody. <laughs> People always talk yeah, about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I mean, well, I mean, when was the last time you tried to drive with a, a single provider on your phone service across all of Palo Alto and be able to maintain your call? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It just doesn't happen. And so one of the things I think about is when people use network edge computing, they use usually really big transformational technologies data intensive technologies, things like AI, um, things like automated vehicles, automated vehicles with the fully automated vehicles, meaning where does, and then there will be, depending on who you talk to, like we talked earlier about debates on where will compute be? Will compute be at the edge? Does compute have to be in the vehicle, which makes the vehicle the edge, but then you need network connectivity to carry all that data back to central resource that can send back any signals that say like, hey, based on my current data analysis, you need to change your driving like this or like that. Uh, you mentioned before the distance between vehicles. There's a lot, obviously, that needs to happen in order for fully AI vehicles to happen. When you think about a problem of that size, you know, in that case, yes, if you're in a dense area, likelihood it works is good. But no one wants to know that their vehicle doesn't work as they drive out into the country, right? right. <laughs> like, right. As they go, as they go away from the central hubs, oh, your vehicle's automation goes down. Yep. How do you think, you know, there's, there's no one way to solve this problem, uh, but I'm love to hear your opinion on how th problems and solutions like that will get solved. And I also want to dive into your opinions on, do you think, cause I kind of have a feeling that a lot of software developers are taking connectivity and connectivity as well as how far the edge has actually gone. They're almost making an assumption that's always going to be there. That, that I will be able to put a compute resource there. I will be able to have connectivity at the location when we know that that's not quite true yet. And, and it's not true in the United States. And it's certainly not true in other no countries, like even first world countries, developed countries like Brazil. There's plenty of places that don't, you know, that, <laughs> that don't have right. the resources that you would think. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a great question um, and, and potentially uh, difficult to unpack with a simple answer. But yeah. You know, to your point about uh, like compute on the cars, uh, as an example, uh, you could say uh, it could be compute in the car, it could be compute in your, in your handheld device, it could be compute on your uh, wristwatch, any of those things, uh, or even improved compute in, in um, a solution that is in an event center that allows for virtual visibility and, you know, 3D visibility to the, the floor of the event center. So you know where your friends are, you know what, uh, how to get to the venue that you want to get to inside the event center, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things are opportunities for localized compute and edge. I think 
Uh, again, this is just Mark's opinion, and Mark's opinion might be supported by a significant amount of history, <laughs> but it's still just opinion, is that the better we make our devices, the reciprocal impact is the more compute we need to support them. Yes. Not the other way around. I agree. Right? And so people ask me all the time, I go, Mark, the smartphone is getting so smart. Pretty soon we'll just be able to do all the stuff on it. No, just the opposite. The smarter you make it, the more things you can do. The more things you can do, the more things suppliers want to be able to do for you to augment the value of that device. And that's true with virtually everything I've ever worked with, right? And so unless we get to the point where uh, city dwellers can just you know, carry around a, a throwaway plexiglass uh, computer that's got a, a chip in the corner and the rest of it is just screen that interacts with the surrounding environment and allows your profile to make calls and, and get access to, to data and stuff like that starts to happen, which it could, it's likely to be more and more compute created in order to facilitate the capabilities, the improved capabilities of compute that are in vehicles, compute that are in stoplights, compute that is in light poles, compute that's in the park bench, for lack of a better description. Uh, there will be just more and more of that. And so, and again, I could, you know, bore everyone to tears with continued examples in that space, but to answer the other part of your question, which is about getting to the edge, I think a lot of developers uh, are in two camps. One is that they, they're not even sure how to get to the edge. <laughs> what does that mean? What, what, what would they do to get to the edge? Who would they buy from? What solution is, is potentially the best uh, option for me? It's not as if there's a, a standard approach for you know, building an EC2 instance or something. You know, it's not, not quite the same relative to edge. Are you building with WASM? Are you building with, you know, web protocols? Are you building on top of a VM? Are you building with microservices? Are you going to be using Lambda? Are you going to be using a, a homegrown functions as a service uh, uh, type of capability? Is it a data heavy app? Is it not? All of these things will drive, uh, you know, not just your, obviously your design requirements, but what kind of vendor partners or, or personal initiative you'll have to undertake in order to make it successful. But that being said, getting to the edge may seem hard for some, but it's not for lack of available capability. I mean, many of the companies that want to partner with Edgevana already are companies that I think are doing fantastic things relative to the edge, relative to infrastructure management, uh, relative to new models for how infrastructure is owned even in a distributed environment. And the problem for most, again, is uh, to repeat myself, is not that that stuff isn't available, but how do I find it and how do I make quick determinations about what combination of services or capabilities or partners do I need in order to solve the problem or create the opportunity that I'm uh, pursuing for my business? So for our listeners, you know, I want to dive into a little bit about your background because you've had an awesome career. I won't call it long, but it's a long, long career. It's okay. <laughs> Talk about your background and what you've been, what you've been up to over your career that's led you to this, this point. Cause you had mentioned earlier before that you've, you've been in the data center business quite a bit. Yeah. I'm a little bit of an of a, um, unusual character in the data center space, or in I should say in the technology space, in the sense that I started in a data center, in a mainframe data center. That Yes, I'm that old, <laughs> uh, in the late 80s. Um, and then I got out of that business entirely and basically started my career over again at HP doing PC support. And I mean, I could barely spell PC at the time. I had no idea. I wasn't, I wasn't a tech geek. I wasn't tearing apart Commodores at home or, or building a network at my home in the 80s or anything like that. I just worked on a mainframe. And when I was done, I went home and watched TV like everybody else or read a book. And so 
I decided that when I left the mainframe environment uh, because of the acquisition by HP of our company, that I should start over and start looking at more modern tech. And so I got into client server. Um, I quickly realized that I was never going to be the guy that tore apart uh, Windows kernels and and rebuilt machines from scratch or or uh, you know took to loving Unix so much that um, I would sleep with a with a with a Unix doll next to me at night. <laughs> um, I knew I wasn't going to be that person, and so I decided I'd reached my level of incompetence and became management material. <laughs> and as a manager, I was recruited. I mean, before I became a manager, I became a manager because I was recruited by my boss to start a help desk for the divisions at HP I worked at. So I got some experience doing that. And then I just expanded to taking over the PC team and building a web development team, one of the first internal web development teams uh, that built so successful solutions um, during the early 90s for HP. I had global responsibilities that included places like Singapore and Bublagen and, and Ipswich, England and, and across the US. And by the time HP and Agilent split, when I was still there, uh, I had been put into a job with 400 employees. Not all of them were HP employees, but uh, nonetheless, 400 people that I was responsible for in some way across an, a broad number of divisions in North America. And uh, so I've had this, this across-the-board infrastructure experience of everything from building and deploying a PC and managing images on a PC to, to deploying in a data center, to building a support solution, to putting networks in, et cetera. And then after leaving HP, I joined a startup uh, kind of the same way I usually buy stocks, which is I joined at the top and sold at the bottom. <laughs> and uh, so I joined a network equipment startup um, in 2000. Uh, um, I was recruited out of HP and, and joined them and as their head of IT. And all seemed good, but that only lasted for about 10 months. And then the bottom fell out of that market and uh, I was out in the cold and I got uh, fairly lucky and found an opportunity as a um, director of infrastructure for Gilead in Foster City. And that experience at Gilead taught me as much in five years as I'd learned in the previous 15. We went from 200 million in sales in, at the end of 2001 to 2 billion in sales at the end of 2005. And building the infrastructure globally to support that from an uh, engineering perspective, which is, you know, uh, technical speak for lab equipment, to building global networks, to putting in new data centers, to establishing standards for uh, you know local infrastructure and how to work in data centers and how to deploy applications and all that kind of stuff, getting all of that kind of experience, to then uh, leaving that, planning to take some time off, but then that lasted for an entire weekend and I got recruited to be uh, interim director of infrastructure for um, Brocade. And um, six weeks later, they told me I needed to become the director of infrastructure in a more permanent role. So I did that. And then I got some experience, not only working in building on the team that they had there and creating better relationships between that team and the applications team and the customer base. Um, and frankly, forming some fantastic relationships with some of the people I worked with there uh, who, who still exist today. But uh, also uh, being responsible for um, all of the activities that lead up to day one for an acquisition. And in this case, an acquisition that was as big or maybe slightly bigger um, than the company I worked for, Brocade, in, in the acquisition of big data. And so I got, again, just an amazing amount of experience um, pulling those two companies together from an infrastructure standpoint and took that to where I was recruited to VMware to solve infrastructure um, logistics for the engineering team of all things. So I've got all this data center, all this infrastructure experience, 
And I'd been a VMware fanboy since 2002. So I thought, okay, I got to take this job. So I went over there and and tried to solve their uh, their logistics problem for getting engineering equipment purchased and put into the data center and managed to get that from 97 days down to about 33 days over the course of my first couple of months on the job, but then realized that they had no department uh, that, that owned responsibility for data centers. So I built a department and then built a strategy and then built data centers uh, for VMware. They didn't have anybody worried about asset management across IT and engineering. So I built a department for that. They didn't have common function for integration of of acquisitions. Uh, Every time they did it, it was like it was starting new each time. So I built that. And so I, I, again, uh, a tremendous amount of experience over just a brief period of time at VMware, a little over two years, uh, when I then left and joined a friend's startup, a cloud management company. Um, And these guys, I mean, so far ahead of their time. I mean, I, I could, you know, still barely spell cloud at the time. And, um, and they were already doing policy and governance for data sovereignty across multi-cloud environments and stuff. And it's 2010. And, and, and that was really the very problem is that they had, they had created a solution for a problem that nobody knew they needed yet and wouldn't know they needed for another eight or nine years. And so that was problematic. But um uh, managed to get recruited out of there to work at a data center company in Las Vegas, which is eventually how I ended up in Las Vegas. And again, got more experience in the data center space, uh, learned some fantastic new uh, strategies and, and capabilities in the data center world, and worked on projects that involved building in Milan and Thailand, and uh, helped build the ecosystem of suppliers within the data center. And so just all of those things, yeah. long story short, brought me to working at a container management company managed and owned by um, Derek Collison, where my ideas around edge really began to take shape. And why I say I'm weird and why my background is strange is the sense that I'm not a data center geek in in truth, because I couldn't talk to you about um, the details of airflow management, or I couldn't build a a one line uh, wire diagram for uh, the power distribution in your data center. Uh, nor could I build the software that manages something like uh, even the very beginning of Amazon's cloud. But what I can do fairly effectively across cloud infrastructure, data centers, and edge is help people figure out the best way to utilize those technologies, determine the best ways to deploy them, determine the best ways to own them efficiently, um, help determine the best ways to operationalize them and um, make sure that they actually bring real value to the business that's uh, incorporating their use. And um, that's, you know, kind of how we got to where I am today. No, I love it. And every single place you went, like you were very clear in describing the scaling mode. I think that was like the common unanimous theme is like this level of scaling, requiring more infrastructure that's providing you that experience. I'd like our listeners also to know that Mark's got, I mean, this guy, you have you are an advisor in this subject to so many startups as well, or different companies. I won't call them startups. They're just you're just you are leaned upon quite a bit for this level of expertise. So I appreciate you doing the show with us today. No, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. No, I, and I, I enjoy contributing to the industry. Um, you know, whether it's in an industry body like uh, being on the board of CNCF or uh, helping out as the chair for the technical committee at the International Data Center Authority. Uh, those and, and advising uh, young startups uh, or even you know mid-sized uh, companies uh, is something that I, I really enjoy. Well, listen, Mark, right now it's time for our listeners 
Now that you've shared some of your business experience, it's time for them to get to know you a little bit more personally. It is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Customer 360 Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Mark, this is where we ask you quick questions about things you're interested in beyond cloud and edge and data center. I'll start with your Twitter profile. It says that you uh, you list a couple different things on it that are unique or fun. Scotch, you're a foodie, cigars, and coffee. Tell me, what's your favorite scotch? My favorite scotch? I mean, if I just had to pick one all the time, it would be Macallan 18 probably, both for a combination of flavor profile and cost. Now, if you're going to have a nice McClellan 18, what are you eating with it? Because you're a foodie as well. Yeah. I, I, to be honest, I don't eat a lot while I'm drinking scotch. Um, okay. More often, if I'm consuming anything, it might be a cigar with the scotch. And um, no, that's a common pairing too. So yes. then I'm going to have to also ask you, what's your favorite stogie? Uh, again, if I just had to pick one, it would be a, a, a Cuban, a Cohibo, Cohiba, excuse me, Siglo 4. That's my single favorite cigar. Uh, a Monte Cristo number two is fantastic. There are a bunch of other fantastic cigars and they don't all have to be Cuban. But if I had to pick just one, that would probably be it. Now, Vegas is a great town to be a foodie. Where do, what's your favorite restaurant to eat at? Well, Vegas, Vegas does have a lot of great restaurants. You know, uh, I'm like most of us, uh, Taco Tuesday is something of a, a should become <laughs> a national holiday, right? So, you know, I could pick you know, like Michael Mina's uh, restaurant inside the Bellagio is fabulous. I've been eating at Michael Mina restaurants, um, you know, since he was the head chef at Aqua in San Francisco. So I love his cooking. He's something of an artist. Uh, and there are other fantastic uh, high-end restaurants. I mean, a cut in the Venetian from a steak standpoint, or even Michael Mina's steakhouse in um, uh, Mandalay Bay. If you're looking for a fantastic experience and an amazing steak, uh, these places are just fabulous. For Japanese, high-end Japanese, Mizumi's in uh, The Win is fabulous. But if you're looking for just really, really good Japanese at a very good price, you go to Soho Sushi on um, Jones. And if you want that killer taco, you really just have to have that amazing have it. Al Pastor with everything on it, street taco. You go to Taco y Taco in Henderson. I love it. I love it. You got you got it. You you got a recommendation. It sounds like for just about every cuisine, every price point. Oh, absolutely. Ask me about Thai. Ask me about you know you name it. Italian. I'll pick something for you for sure. So the next time anyone goes to Vegas and you know Mark, hit Mark up. He'll give you a nice recommendation. As a tech leader, we assume you also consume and utilize quite a lot of gadgets and gizmos. What are some gadgets and gizmos that you are really excited about whether you already own them or you're looking forward to them, uh, you know, being available to the market. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited and a little bit disappointed in my latest acquisition of an iPhone 12. Oh, really? You got, we got to hear about this. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about the camera. I mean, I just, I love the camera. Although in some low light pictures, I've got to figure out how to uh, either apply the right filters or get the camera to take the picture. So it doesn't look artificially lighted. Right. But realistically it their their camera is magic in in low light <laughs> i mean even to the point of because it stitches the pictures together taking um what otherwise would be you know fuzz or uh out of focus portions uh, and cleaning them up as part of the process uh is just amazing but the phone itself has not has not come without problems associated with um uh, still getting screen locks occasionally uh battery life isn't quite what i was hoping and I've also been a Mac user for a long time. And uh, I, 
I was a PC user for many, many years before that. Came to really enjoy using the Mac, but again, not super happy with the Mac uh, 13-inch. The uh, battery life has been, I'm lucky to get two or three hours out of it if I'm doing video and, and stuff without a connection. But other than that, um, from a technology, I mean, I love, I love the, um, the tech going into smart homes, but I'm, I'm frankly, I'm terrified of things like Echo and, um, and uh, Google Talk and things like that. Because for the dumb reason, I know that my data is collected everywhere already, but it just scares me to think that um, there's something in the house that's listening to me all day long and it's not just my cell phone. <laughs> that multiple devices at any point this or if you uh when we talk to CISOs they often talk about security entry points like we just talked to one of the top people at uh Barracuda he's like yeah every time you bring a smart device into your house you're just opening a doorway <laughs> yeah yeah there's, there's there's no way there's no way I'm putting my door locks on on somebody else's computer I'm just I'm not doing it not yet <laughs> Well, listen, Mark, man, we appreciate you sharing your vision, sharing your background and your history of what data center is. Thanks for sharing what you think Edgevana can do for for CIOs everywhere that are looking to easily buy and access compute or whatever they need to get move closer to the edge. And uh, for all of our listeners, if you ever in touch, if you're ever in Vegas, now we know, Mark, bring him a McClellan 18. He'll never turn that down. Absolutely. Bring the Sagano 4. Right. And if you need a recommendation, he's your man. He definitely knows where to go get whatever cuisine at any price point in Vegas. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Mark, thanks for doing IT Visionaries. No, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a bunch, Albert. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.